Father, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Lord, we come to your word because it's in your word that we meet you as you intend for us to see you. Lord, you have revealed to us who you are. You have revealed to, to us who you are through Christ. And we know who our Savior is. Father, forgive us for how often we attempt to make you into an image that suits our desires and suits our wants and suits our nature instead of submitting ourselves to who you are as you have shown us in your word. And Lord, as you do that today, I pray that we would break down those parts of us, Father, that demand you be things that we want you to be, like we see the Jews doing here. And that we would see you and your plan and your sovereign power revealed, and we'd worship you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're looking at the last section of Jesus here, what he said to the Jews when he was speaking to them. So we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 47 uh, this morning. And while you're turning there, and before we read it, I want to think about this. We, we live, I think, with a lot of tension today. While I was preparing my sermon this week, I, I thought about how we live with a lot of tension about who Jesus is, who Jesus is supposed to be, and who we wish Jesus would be. And what do we do with that tension? Do we twist our understanding of Jesus so that he fits better into the mold of the Savior that we would like to have? Do we begin to ignore Jesus in favor of other hopes, in favor of other potential saviors? Do we just totally miss the fact that we might be saying that Jesus is something that he just simply is not, or that he does something, or he thinks some way that he does not? Perhaps we've just never fully recognized Jesus in the first place. So here in this last section in John 5, we're talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's pointing at the Jewish leaders of his day. And he's indicting them because they don't recognize their own Savior. You know, he's saying, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to start the service. And it's about the longing for the Messiah. You know, I, we've been reading a lot of Christmas stories, and I, I love the story of Simeon. Simeon, the old man in the temple in Luke's gospel, who, who gets to see the baby Christ, and he lifts up the, the baby Jesus, and he says, I've seen your salvation. He's the light of the Gentiles. He's the glory of his people, Israel. Simeon recognized Jesus, didn't he? Even as a baby, Simeon recognized who this person was that he was confronted with. But these Jewish leaders today in John chapter 5, they can't recognize Jesus after hearing him teach, after seeing him work miracles, after hearing John the Baptist point right at him and say, that's him. These Jewish leaders, they still can't see who Jesus is. 
Why is that? From their perspective, from their perspective, none of those things were enough. Hearing Jesus teach, seeing his miracles, having John the Baptist point at him, seeing all the prophecies fulfilled in his birth, none of this is enough for the Jewish leaders. Why is that? I think what we see here today is because he is not what they wanted or expected him to be. He is not what they wanted or expected him to be. We're going to see that they did not think that they needed a Savior for their sins. They didn't think they needed that. No, they they have earned their righteousness themselves. They have made themselves okay in the sight of God by their efforts and by their work. They're fine when it comes to their sins. They don't need a Savior for that. What, what did they want? They wanted a Savior who was going to come and make them even more powerful in the world. They wanted a Savior who was going to come and allow them to lord it over the Romans who had been lording it over them. They wanted a Savior who was going to come and allow them to rule the Mediterranean to get back the glory that they had in the days of David and Solomon. That's what they wanted. And so they couldn't recognize the Savior when He was standing right in front of them. And so I was thinking about this, and you know, in two weeks we're going to be celebrating Christmas. And we we know that it's all about celebrating the Savior. We We had a great time on Thursday talking about, you know, the reason for the season is Jesus, right? That's Everybody knows that. But let's take a minute here this morning. And let's make sure that we're not like these Jews. That we recognize Jesus as He presents Himself in Scripture. Because it's possible that we don't. It's possible that you don't. I mean, perhaps you don't think that you need a Savior for your sins either. Perhaps you think, like the Jews, that you've got it all together and you're all good. That that your efforts have been enough to make you okay. What more could God expect than what you have given? It should be enough. But there's also another way I'm going to bring out this morning that I think our culture thinks about this. I think our culture has, in, in part, has moved away from this idea of, well, you have to do enough to earn your position with God. I think it's more likely in our culture that we're tempted to think, yes, I'm a sinner, yes, I make mistakes, yes, I am, but God will affirm me and accept me anyway. So I don't need to worry about Him saving me from my sins because He's going to affirm me and accept me for who I am anyway. And there's another way that we we twist our need for sins and go, that's not the kind of Savior that we need. It is possible that we want Jesus to be a different kind of Savior than He is. And like the Jews, we are very wrong. So let's read, beginning in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, I've got several points this morning. The first point this morning from the text is this. The bigger story is always about Jesus. Point number one is the bigger story is always about Jesus. He says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the testimony of the Old Testament is what takes center stage here in Jesus' argument. We, we know, Christians, right? We know, we look at the Old Testament, we know that Jesus is written across the pages of the Old Testament. From Genesis 3, when we hear that a son of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head, to the fact that God had Moses write about kings centuries before Israel ever had one, setting the stage for the son of David, a king who is going to rule for forever. He's called the root of Jesse. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean, who was the son of man that Daniel saw? What about the suffering servant that Isaiah told us about? What about the king riding in on the donkey? I mean, once you know what you're looking for, Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. He is anticipated. He is prophesied. We just sang, O little town of Bethlehem. What's so special about Bethlehem? It's that God said hundreds of years before Jesus was born that it would happen in Bethlehem. Matthew tells us, he says, In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Jesus is written across the entirety of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of it in every way. But these Jews here missed Jesus as Savior, and they missed Him in their own Scriptures. They think that they're supposed to live up to the Old Testament law. And so what have they done? By this point, they've built up an entire system around this. They've built up an entire system of rules, an entire system of laws on top of the Bible that they could follow, and those would bring them life. But God's intention, guys, has always been that He would bring you life. It even says it in Scripture. Through Ezekiel, he told them he would put his spirit in them. He would make them alive. He would give them a new heart. God's intention had always been that he would be the one. He is the only one. Do you remember how we ended the sermon last week? We, we looked at these witnesses to who Jesus was. But they still didn't believe. Even with witnesses, they were hopeless. Even with, wit with witnesses, they wouldn't believe because that's what it is to be dead in your sins. 
It was always God's intention that he would be the one, not you, not me. He would be the one who would give us life. But that's not how these Jews saw it, and it's not how they wanted it to happen. They wanted life to be something they could get for themselves. They say they love God, but Jesus says that they don't. I mean, he, because you imagine, he just says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. If you are not relying on God for your life, then I know you do not have the love of God within you. That's powerful. One commentator says, they make a profession of loving him, but in fact there is no real love. This is always the case where religion is basically self-willed. Their understanding of the Bible was all about what they themselves must do to live up to it. Their religion was centered on what they do and what they can do to be righteous. And I do think that you can make the argument that a religion that is all about what you can do to make yourself righteous is really all about loving yourself, isn't it? Ultimately. I mean, look, I can make it into heaven because of what I've done. Look, I have a right to be in heaven because of what I've done. What am I saying there? I'm saying, look at me. Look at me. Look at, look at what I've done. I'm able to fulfill the requirements. I mean, this is at the core of the cry of everybody who believes that it's their power that allows them the right to come to God. The cry is, look at me. I mean, even those who simply say that the only thing they bring is their choice of Jesus, even that says, look at me, I chose him. But the Bible says, look at Jesus, doesn't it? The Bible says over and over again, look at Jesus, look at God, he chose you. Look at God who did not have to, and yet he did. Look at his glory. Look at his love. Look at his mercy. Anything that says, no, look at me and what I've done to earn this, it steals glory, doesn't it? Jesus looks at them and says, you do not have the love of God in you because you're looking at yourself, because you're focused on yourself, whereas we should be focused entirely on God. We should see the depth of our hopelessness. And in that darkness, we see the great light that shines, which is God and his love. Look at Jesus. As, as several reformers over the year have said and, and have quoted each other, and I couldn't, I, in fact, find who was the originator of this particular quote, but they've said, and they're all right, the only thing that you have to contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. Look at Jesus. Because here's the thing, guys. What we're seeing here in John chapter 5 is that these Jews can't even recognize the main character of their own scriptures when he's standing right in front of them. That's an indictment on them. It's a condemnation on them. But it's also a warning to us, isn't it? I do not want... On the day that Jesus returns, I do not want to, like these Jews, be like, no, that can't be him. I want to recognize him 
They've lost sight, though, of what God really is all about in the history of His world and His creation. They're looking at the Son here, and they can't see the Father, which is a terrible indictment. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you, know, you, you meet somebody, and you're like, this person, they, they seem really familiar to me. I'm not sure why. It's like, I look at my brother now. And I see my brother, and I, and I see the way that he walks. I see the way that he talks. They were over at our house last week, and I'm, I'm just looking at him, and it's so weird. You know why? Because I look at him, and I see my dad from 25 years ago. Like, I see him out of the corner of my eye, and, and he just, he, he, he's built like him. He walks like him. He talks like him. He tells stories like him. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's my dad. 25 years ago. There was a time a few years back I was with some of my nieces and nephews and um, things were starting to get a little out of hand. And so as the adult in the room, I had to bring some order to the things that were getting out of hand. And one of my nieces turned to Sarah when it happened and said, oh my gosh, for a second there, I thought my dad was here. And then I realized it was just Kevin. There's a family resemblance, though, isn't there? There's a family resemblance that says that if you know one person well, you should recognize those things in their family. What does it say about these Jews? That the Son of God is right in front of them and they can't recognize Him? If he truly is the Son of God, then what that says is, I don't think they know this guy's father nearly as well as they thought they did. If he's sitting here saying, my father and I share everything. My father has given me all of these things. I only do what my father allows me to do. And they're saying, we don't recognize that. <laughs> then what are they saying? They're saying, we don't recognize the father. These Jews who claim to know God better than anyone on earth, they can't recognize his own son when he's standing in front of them because they don't really know God. That's what we're about to see here. They don't really know him. They don't know his priorities. They don't know what his plan actually is. They have made up their own priorities. And in their pride and in their self-love and in their earthly desires, they have put their priorities, their priorities when it comes to the law, their priorities when it comes to the Israelite culture and world, they put all that on God. We need to hear that as a warning so that we don't make that same mistake, right? That's going to lead us to our second point here. To recognize Jesus, we have to recognize what motivates him. So my second point is God's plan, not ours, brings him glory. God's plan, not ours, brings him glory. These Jews had over the years built up their plan and then fit God to it. And Jesus is here to say that's not how it works. We, we see here that Jesus is not concerned about the glory from man. He's not concerned about the glory from them. He doesn't, he doesn't need it. Not, not if he is who he says he is. He's concerned with the glory of God. Always. It directs all his priorities. Those who belong to God must be concerned for the things that God is concerned for. We must be repentant. We can't discount Jesus, even if, 
Even if we wish that Jesus was different than he is. Even if we were to wish that Jesus was a different kind of savior than he is. We wish that God would go about his plan differently than he does. Perhaps we wish that Jesus would be a king in a different way today than he is. And if we're tempted to think that, we need to repent of it. That's the error that these Jews are making. Jesus is exactly who he is. Goes along with his job title. He tells these Jews, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Commentators will tell you that there were at least 64 men around this time who claimed to be the Messiah. This was a unique moment in the history of the world. It's no surprise. I mean, maybe for the same reason that you see more demonic activity happening in the Gospels than you see at any other time in the history of the Scriptures. This is the time when the Christ is born. It's no surprise that there would be this sort of activity, this sort of confusion. There were a host of men, like I said, commentators can, can point out at least 64 who were claiming to be the Christ, and several of them achieved popularity and support. So we can't know here specifically who Jesus might be thinking of, and it's possible he wasn't thinking about anyone specific at all. It's more likely he's just pointing out that these Jews can't recognize the true Messiah when he comes with the Father's goals from the Father because they can't recognize the Father. They can only think in earthly terms. And so they're more open to these other messiahs who are, are walking around. Because what were their goals? What were these Jews' goals? To secure Israel as a nation, the leader of the nations on the global stage, to overthrow Rome, to defeat their enemies, to be vindicated for their years of exile and servitude, to be vindicated for their commitment to the Torah. Their Messiah needed to have the same understanding of the Scriptures that they had, that their legalistic system of interpreting the law of Moses, showing how righteous they can be, how that's actually the correct system, that's the Messiah they wanted. And so Messiahs who talked about those things were well-received. The Messiahs who allowed them, to, the, these Jewish leaders, to remain in their places, teaching and, and doing what they're doing, those Messiahs were well received. There were, <laughs> speaking about the, the political power here and wanting to overthrow Rome and wanting to create Israel as a nation, if you read history, there were some crazy Jewish rebellions and riots that happened during this time. They were serious about this. But somebody who comes along who wasn't talking about overthrowing the Roman government and making Israel the superpower. Somebody who wasn't talking about the systems of rules that they built off of the Mosaic law. Somebody who instead was coming along and was talking about things like new life and second births and eternal life 
Somebody was talking about forgiving sins. That was not on their agenda. That just did not fit with what they thought they needed from a Messiah. Jesus didn't fit. You know, a question we have to ask and we have to wrestle with is, does he fit now? Does he fit with our expectations? Because Jesus has not hidden the priority that he and the Father share. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day he's calling in his sheep. Today is the day he's adopting his children. Today is the day he is spiritually raising the dead to life. Today is the day that he's transforming his children into the image of Christ. Today is the day that he is putting to death the things of the flesh and giving life in the Spirit. Today is the day that He's opening our eyes to see the truth, that we would live by the truth and walk by the truth and stand in the truth. Today is the day that Jesus has come to resurrect dead, sinful, wretched souls and make them alive in Him. That has always been priority number one for God. No question about it. It supersedes everything else. Calling Jesus our Savior and Messiah on His terms is never going to be a popular choice. Not when it's on His terms. Because in His terms, you and I have to confess our sins. You, you and I have to, to recognize our hopelessness. You and I have to recognize that our pride gets us nothing. We have to recognize that we're wretched apart from God. It won't be a popular choice. There, there are many other saviors that fit our nature and our hearts better. There are many people who give the name of Jesus to their saviors, but they don't look anything like the Jesus in Scripture. But if Jesus looks like the Father, we want to look like Jesus. We want to have that family resemblance. And we're going to have to change. First, we have to die. We have to be made new, and then we have to be transformed. And looking like Jesus may make you loved. Looking like Jesus may make you hated. Again, it's always the case that there are people who think that they can earn their salvation. Very much like the Jews. But one thing I want to I make an application to for our culture today is that it seems more popular that instead of saying, I can earn my salvation, we say, I should just be accepted and affirmed for who I am. I don't have to earn anything. We may be hated if we stand and we say, this is what God says about acceptance and affirmation. God actually talks about repentance and transformation. He comes to us, yes, as we are, he loves us even when we are His enemies. But His gospel call is one that changes us. He does not accept us as we are. 
His agenda, the agenda of Christ, is to change you and I into something greater than we could ever be on our own. We die to who you are. So, so instead of saying that, that, that God simply accepts us and affirms us for who we are, no, God actually demands that who we are must die. Every one of us. No matter if you want to say, well, I'm not as bad as somebody else, or I'm not involved in those things or those things. No, the, the gospel call is that first you die to yourself. And then you're made alive in Christ. And that kind of message, it, it will change some hearts. It will, because that's the power of God at work. But it's going to harden some other hearts. People do not want to accept a Savior who says, I will change you in our culture. And don't think that that message is just about sexuality and gender either. I mean, it certainly is. But there's plenty of people who profess Christ. There's plenty of people who live basically good lives, culturally speaking, and they believe that Jesus just accepts and affirms them for who they are. That's what he does. These Jews believe that they had to earn God's acceptance and that they had. Our culture believes that you just don't have to earn it. You simply deserve it because you're breathing. We can't buy into that. That's not who Jesus is. And in order for us not to buy into it, we have to first personally, individually, we have to come to Christ. Let me ask you something. When was the last time that you repented of a sin? When was the last time that you confessed to somebody that you have sinned against them? Are we saying that we believe that repentance and confession of sin are necessary, but we're not actually engaging enough with our own hearts to see that we need transformation? I would say if, it, if it's been a week, I mean, if it's been a month, and you, you haven't repented of sin, I don't think it's because you haven't sinned in a month. If you haven't confessed that you've sinned against somebody, is that because it's really been that long since you've sinned against somebody? Do we really believe that God calls for us to be transformed? Before we tell the culture that God does not accept you for who you are, do we really believe that God is transforming us and that we're to be a part of that transformation? That we have been given the Spirit so that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh, so that we can put off the old man and put on the new man? Are we living what we want to say that Jesus is all about? Is it happening in us? Or, either intentionally or, or perhaps through negligence, perhaps just without thinking, have we come to the opinion that God just accepts us and affirms us for who we are, and we don't have to grow in Christ? We know that's not true. We know that God wants us to be transformed. We know that God will not make excuses for our sin. Our sin had to be paid for by the death of Christ. We know that, that God certainly doesn't want us to say, look what we have done. <laughs> 
But if we're going to say, look what Christ has done, well, then there should be some fruit of that in our lives. It puts it on a personal level for us, and I think it should. We don't just think about the cultural side of living in the already, that is, Jesus has already come, he's already forgiven us from sins, and the not yet, he hasn't returned yet. We think about the personal side. How, how do we need to be transformed? I think it means that we, we have to take stands for God's glory. Jesus is not concerned about the glory of man. Jesus is concerned about the glory of God. We must be concerned about the glory of God in our own personal lives. We, we, we have to take a stand on what goes into our minds and our hearts and the minds and the hearts of, of, of the people that we're responsible for. We have to make the stand that we're going to be humble, not prideful. We're going to put to death the things that are earthly in us. Uh, we're going to make the stand, for example, that we're not going to be pulled into the world's lies. The world's lies about acceptance and affirmation. The world's lies about our identities and who we are. I mean, goodness, the world's lie that busyness is next to godliness. Some of us are believing that lie. Some of us need to take the stand that, God, that being godly actually means to just rest in God. To trust God. That you prioritize what God prioritizes. What does God prioritize? The souls of the people around you? Kingdoms will rise and fall. God is calling his sheep. The people around you, the souls that are living next to you, the souls that are living in your house with you, the souls that you are crossing paths with, the ones who are in need, the ones who may be hungry and struggling, the, the ones that you can be Christ's hands to. What does God prioritize? His salvation. And it takes a transformation of our hearts and priorities to do this. We can't afford to lose sight of the ultimate desire and plan of the Father and the Son. The ultimate desire that they have, that they showed us, that Jesus is here telling these Jews about and they're not getting is that there is a new covenant between God and his people. And that leads to the final point here. The new covenant is what's happening now. These Jews thought that the covenant in the Old Testament was all that mattered. But they misunderstood it. They believed that by living up to the Old Testament law of Moses, they would achieve life for themselves. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But that's not what the law did, is it? The law didn't give them life. Jesus says here, he says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. Very similar to when he said, I did not come to condemn the world. Do not think that I will accuse you. Why? Because there is one who already accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. 
So this is, again, just an absolute indictment to them. They believe Moses gives them life, that by following Moses and obeying Moses' law, they will achieve the, the, the life they want in God. And here Jesus comes along and goes, that's not what's happening at all. Moses is accusing you. He's not, he's not leading you to life. Moses is actually condemning them. Moses is accusing anyone who says, look at me. I'm able to do what's needed in the sight of God because you can't. I can't. No one can. These Jews couldn't. That's not what Moses was doing. Moses was showing you and I that if we are not given life by God, we'll never get life any other way. That's how important it is. That's how vital it is to understand that Jesus came to usher in this new covenant. Because you can't, I can't, no one can, but that's okay if you understand that God can and will give you life. But you have to see Jesus for who he is. You have to see that Moses' words set the stage for God's salvation. Moses shows us how help, hopeless and helpless we are left to ourselves. Just like last week when we saw that the witnesses were not enough. Now he's saying Moses' law is not enough for you. Your efforts are not enough for you. What you're boasting in about yourself is never going to be enough for you. Don't you see that you couldn't keep all the law? Don't you see that you have stumbled and fallen? The perfect law of God accuses our imperfect hearts. That's what it does. And so Jesus has to step in and fulfill the law that you and I can't fulfill. And he does. And why does he do it? Does he do it just to show off? Does he do it just to go, no, see, this is possible? Sometimes when I'm with my kids and I'm trying to get them to do something, teaching your kids to do something is really hard if you're a prideful person. Because you're just like, no, that's not how you do it. No, that's not how you do it. No, I'm telling you how to do it. No, that's not how you do it. No, listen, I'm telling you how to do it. Just, just watch. See, you can do it. Okay, now you do it. Th th that's how as an earthly father we might be. See? But Jesus didn't come down so that he could go, see, this is how you do it. Okay, now you do it. I did it. What's so hard about it? No, that's not why Jesus came. He didn't, he didn't come to condemn us that way either, to go, see, it is possible. You guys are just all even worse than you thought. No, he came down and he fulfilled the law because we couldn't and he did it on our behalf. He did it for us. The whole story of scripture is that he, Jesus alone, is the only one who can do the thing that's necessary for you and I to be here this morning claiming that we're children of God. If you are claiming that you are a child of God for any other reason than because Jesus did what you couldn't, then you're not a child of God. You don't have the love of God in you. 
And when you think about how important that is, you see why God's priority goes so far beyond our priorities. If Jesus does not fulfill his law on your behalf so that he can be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if he does not do what you couldn't do and what I couldn't do, then he couldn't also later on in John come before the Father and say, Kevin could not fulfill the law. He's failed. He's accused, rightly. But I have fulfilled the law. Kevin has been condemned, deserves justice, and justice from God is unstoppable. It is perfect. It is absolute. Kevin deserves that for what he has done. If Jesus did not come down, though, and fulfill the law, he could not at that moment say, I will take Kevin's condemnation. I will take his punishment. I will take the justice because God's justice is absolute. He cannot look away from sin. He cannot overlook it. Every sin, every evil deed, every wicked thought, God will make right. But Jesus says, I will take that so that he doesn't have to. Because that's the kind of Savior that he is. God made a new covenant. One that is full of grace for you and I as sinners. Have you not repented of sin in weeks or months? Because you don't want to face the sin that's in your heart? You don't have to be that way. The covenant that Jesus offers is one where you confess your sin so that he forgives it. So that he takes the punishment. It's not fair <laughs> at all. It's, it's, it's very unfair. It's full of grace. It's full of mercy. So the, the question is, what kind of Savior is Jesus right now? Today. We live in this already and not yet moment. We want... Well, we want many things. But what kind of Savior is Jesus? Jesus is the King who is bringing more and more people into His covenant today. He's bringing more and more sheep into His covenant. There's a day that's going to come when Jesus will show up again. And his role as Savior is going to change on that day. But today, guys, as we celebrate Christmas, as we live in this world, with that tension of what kind of Savior is Jesus, God's priorities have always been clear. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The world is condemned already. He came that the world may have life and have it through him. 
He, didn't, he doesn't accuse like Moses accuses. No, if you understood Moses rightly, you would understand that Moses is demanding a Savior. <laughs> Moses is demanding Jesus to come. A king who dies for us. So what do we do now? We live for our Savior. You make sure that, that, that we are fully obeying Him, trusting in Him, relying on Him, living in Him, as, as He is filling up the roster of His kingdom today, as He is snatching His sheep back from the pit today, as, as He is electing, as He's calling, as He's saving. We're about that on His behalf. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes in hopes that He'll bring more people into His covenant. This is who our Savior is. We began the service with a reading from Isaiah 9. I want to end with another reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven comes near. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you have saved us, Lord. We want to make sure that our priorities always align with your word. Lord, and so we thank you for this reminder that the Jews misunderstood why the Messiah was coming in their day. Lord, we want to understand why the Messiah came, and we want to understand why Jesus is not returning yet, and we find it here, that our Savior is saving people from eternal condemnation and justice from your hand. He is saving people from their sins. Lord, you have saved many of us. We deserve your condemnation and yet, we've been given your salvation. So, Father, I pray that as we see Jesus proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of heaven comes near, that that would be our heart, Lord. We would repent. Lord, I pray that we would soften our hearts, that we would, we would kill the pride that's in us, Lord, the pride that in whatever way, whether, whether it be... Um, Look at, look at me and what I've done, or whether it be I just deserve for you to give, accept me for who I am. Father, destroy that pride. We need Christ, and those around us need Christ above all. Lord, help us to be a light in our culture by proclaiming who you are, proclaiming what you are doing, and by living faithfully according to our King until he returns. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.